Hey friends, I hope you're doing well this great Monday. Welcome to another episode of True Crime-ish. I'm your host, Jonah B, and I'm here to make your Mondays great again. Just a reminder that July is National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and this observance raises awareness of the challenges that affect the mental health of racial and ethnic minority groups. Learn more about mental health and find ways to support mental health equity at cdc.gov slash health equity. Let me set the scene, y'all. So we're traveling all the way back into the 1940s. And if you have some melanin in your skin, you probably already know where I'm going with today's story. So the time period we are in is right after the Great Migration. The Great Migration if you don't know, was when you had thousands of black people who came in droves to industrial cities after World War I. Now, if you haven't noticed by now, I'm always going to throw a little knowledge at you when we're setting the scene. Anyways, we have the NAACP helping get policies created to assist black people in their equal rights to pay, Voting, jobs, housing, education, you know, everything that we really take for granted now. But southern states weren't really liking too kindly to black people using their newfound freedoms to protest laws and rules that were already set in place. You know, if it's working for them, why not fix it? So life in Georgia for black people didn't compare to the lives of their northern brothers and sisters. And it was still quite racist or very much racist and very much segregated. And they were subjected to constant discrimination and extreme violence. In this case, one man living in the small community of Cuthbert, Georgia, had to find out the hard way about this golden rule of life. Don't mess around and find out. On the night of April 30th, 1945, Lena Baker, a black maid in Cuthbert, Georgia, was making her way to the home of the town coroner, J.A. Cox. Once she arrived, she calmly told him that she had shot Mr. Ernest Knight with his own gun, and he may want to get on down to the gristmill that Mr. Ernest owned. Mr. Cox kind of looking at Lena a little crazy I can imagine told her to go on to the sheriff's office to inform him while he went to the gristmill to look into Mr. Ernest and in case you don't know what a gristmill is because I for sure didn't it's a place where they grind grains so yeah he tells Lena to go on to the sheriff's but of course she didn't instead Lena Baker goes on home, but before she got there, she went ahead and picked up a fifth of liquor as well. And you know, I really feel my girl because I've already just came and told you what was going on. And now you want me to come and snitch on myself even more instead of going home to enjoy my little bottle and probably get the last good night of rest I'm going to have in God knows how long. But anywho, that's exactly where the sheriff picked her up from without incident once the coroner did confirm that Mr. Ernest was in fact shot dead at the gristmill. 
once arrested, Lena must have had, you know, more than the one fifth that I said. She had to have like a few because she was given a day or two to detox from getting drunk or being so intoxicated before the police could even take her statement. So I guess she did get a few more nights of peaceful sleep in a jail cell but moving on before we can get into what Lena Baker had to say I think we need to just cover a little background on who Lena Baker was so we can have more context on how she came to be in this situation Lena Baker was born June 8th 1901 in the very small community of Cotton Hill just about five miles southwest of Cuthbert Georgia There she lived with her parents, her brother, and her two sisters. As a family, they were all born into farm work, mainly chopping cotton for a small-time farmer, J.A. Cox, who is now also the coroner of Cutbirth, as I mentioned earlier. And that just really reminds me of times where the sheriff would also be the deputy and the deputy would also be the judge and the judge would also be the cook in the cafe, you know, just wearing all of the hats that the town offers. But anywho, after a while, Lena's family moved to Cuthbert, where she began to clean homes and do laundry work to help her family make ends meet. Mind you, the pay she was getting wasn't enough to rub two pennies together so all this work she was doing was was not producing a better quality of life for her or her family as lena got older she began to use her good looks as a means of getting money and you know those who know know what i mean by that lena and her friend began entertaining men in exchange for money and rumor was that they were also entertaining white men which was just a no-no in this time period This right here created a scandal, and when authorities caught wind of this race mixing, is what they called it, Lena and her accomplice, her friend, were arrested and spent several painstaking months in the horrific workhouse, a more exotic form of the work release program that we have today, needless to say. When Lena was released, she had been shunned by her black community. With no one to turn to, Lena decided to turn to the bottle and find solace in alcohol. By the time Lena was in her 40s, she had three kids and was a full-blown alcoholic. And people who have lived with or just visibly saw others who suffer from this disease know wholeheartedly how this can create a traumatic upbringing. In 1941, Lena was hired to work for a man named Ernest Knight. Ernest was known for being a mean, drunken man, but who was Lena to judge? She needed the money. Mr. Knight had apparently broken his leg at the gristmill that he owned and needed someone to be there to care for him. And this is when we will return to the present day after the sheriff has went and picked up Lena Baker. She slept off the effects of the liquor and now she's ready to tell us what happened. So Lena states that this tragic or she doesn't state this verbatim, but she says that this tragic ordeal began a day before on April 29th. While Baker was minding her own drunken business at her home and Mr. Knight just appeared. 
forcing her or attempting to force her to go back to the mill with him. She tried her best to persuade him otherwise, even going so far as to leave her home to go to the liquor store, which happened to be closed. But when she got back home, he was still there. So she tricked him into thinking she was going to go with him, but ran off, found some whiskey and fell asleep in a bush. She woke up the next morning still trying to, you know, steer clear of Ernest and not thinking that Mr. Knight would be at the gristmill, she decided to head there. But when she got there, turns out, wow, he's at his gristmill that he owns. When Lena decided to leave, he ended up locking her up or as some of the news articles described it as chaining her and assaulting her multiple times, which happened to be something that he has done multiple times before. Somewhere within those long hours Lena was trapped in the mill, Mr. Knight came back and an argument transpired in which Lena tried to escape, but Mr. Knight covered the door with an iron bar in his hands. Lena stated that she feared for her life and believed that she was honestly in danger. And as they tussled, the gun that Mr. Knight was wearing across his chest went off, hitting him in the head instantly killing him. As I said earlier, Lena told J.A. Cox right away what she had done, so she didn't try to hide what she later described as self-defense. After Lena's statement, she was arrested and charged with capital murder and the death of Ernest Knight. Now, before we get into what happened at Lena's trial, because Cutbirth was such a small town, you know how we say everybody knows everything about everybody. That's the type of town that this was. So let's just see what there is to know about Mr. Ernest Knight. He was not well liked by the people in his community. He was known to be cruel, abusive, loud, and just basically a mean drunk, like I said earlier. He was so embarrassing or the white people in his community thought that he was embarrassing to them and they just thought he bragged way too much about the little that he had by the time he reached his 60s he had sustained a fall and that is when he hired lena baker to come and be his aide eventually lena started aiding him in something else wink wink because their relationship became sexual some sources say it was more of a quid pro quo relationship where Ernest supplied Baker with unlimited alcohol and she entertained him sexually. With this being against the law, Lena was taking a lot of heat from Ernest's son, who as one source said beat her within an inch of her life to make her stay away. And then when that didn't work, he moved his dad, well picked his dad up and moved him to North Carolina but Ernest just brought Lena with him. And when Lena decided to leave and go back to Georgia, he just followed her back. So whatever this weird situationship was that no one seemed to condone is what got her in this trial situation now. The trial would be nothing more than a mere formality. Lena was defended by her court-appointed counsel, W.L. Ferguson, her impartial jury, 
quote unquote, consisted of 12 white men, 12 white men who also went to church together, hung out with one another, went to family gatherings with one with one another, just, you know, overall besties, all of which was normal and everyday court practices in 1944. And if that was not enough to put the icing on the cake, the presiding judge was none other than quote unquote, honorable judge William Tugon Whirl. And yes, they call him Tugon for the exact reason you are thinking. Judge Tugon was infamously known for having two pistols laid on his judicial bench for all to see. From the search that I did, I couldn't find any mention of him actually using the pistols in the courtroom. So thankfully, he never saw it necessary to have some type of random duel in the courtroom. Anywho, as you can see, this is another moment in Lena's life where the odds are heavily stacked against her and not at all seeming to be in her favor, even just a little bit. This trial, if you want to call it that, was concluded in under four hours. Due to us being in the segregation happy South, with Georgia leading the charge, trials for black people went a lot similarly to Lena's. She was not able to testify or call any witnesses to her defense. And when it was all said and done, the all-white male jury deliberated about the length of an insecure episode and was ready to hand Lena her fate. Like, yeah, here you go. Lena Baker had been found guilty and was sentenced to death. Judge Tugun wasted absolutely no time scheduling the legal lynching. I mean, execution. And Lena was set to die on March 5th, 1945. And let me not forget to mention how her court-appointed counsel immediately filed an appeal asking for a new trial to be scheduled because he stated the verdict was contrary to the evidence and without evidence to support it, then the verdict was contrary to the law and the principles of justice and equality. He then just as immediately resigned as her lawyer, leaving Lena to be her own counsel since no one was appointed after his resignation. And, you know, spoiler alert, Lena was granted a 60-day reprieve by the Governor Arnall from the appeal that was submitted, but the Board of Pardons and Parole denied clemency when they heard the case. So I cannot tell y'all where exactly Lena was held after sentencing, but what I do know is that days before she was set to die, she was taken to Reedsville State Prison on February 23rd, 1945. Not only was Reedsville one of the worst prisons in America, but Baker was also housed with the men for a while before she was moved to solitary, which also happened to be just right down the hall from where she would be executed in the electric chair that was disgustingly nicknamed Old Sparky. To not only know that I was about to die, but to frequently pass or be able to glance out my cell and see the room that I would be dying in, would have made me, you know, start coming up with all types of escape plans. But, you know, not Lena Baker. She makes me feel like such a wuss 
because she is said to have remained calm the entire time on death row, which to me seems like one of the shortest death row reigns ever, by the way, because just eight months later on March 5th, 1945, Lena Baker would find herself walking down that hallway to a room that she would never be walking out of. Her final words were, and I quote, what I done, I did in self-defense, or I would have been killed myself. Where I was, I could not overcome it. God has forgiven me. I have nothing against anyone. I picked cotton for Mr. Pritchard, and he has been good to me. I am ready to go. I am one in the number. I am ready to meet my God. I have a very strong conscience. Unquote. And something about that just really struck me when I first read it, and it does it each time I read it. Her accountability, her being at peace, her accepting her fate, her being ready to meet her God, it's all admirable in a way to me, but just incredibly soul crushing as well. I don't know, I, I cannot explain it, but something in her words pose strength, understanding, and an intelligence that I just cannot explain. Baker's body was then sent back to Cuthbert, Georgia, and I found it comical that Mr. Ernest Knight, our victim, untimely death was not mentioned in Cuthbert Times, but Lena's Baker public lynching, I mean, sorry, <laughs> execution was headlined with quote unquote Baker Burns. After Lena's body made it to Cuthbert, she would be buried in an unmarked grave next to Mount Vernon Missionary Baptist Church. I read that her grave remained unmarked due to the black folks in the area fearing some sort of retaliation from the white community. A lot of black people preferred to play things safe in this time period due to constant fear. But in 1998, the church congregation that Lena attended and is said to have sang it collected enough money to finally slap, you know, a piece of rock onto Lena's grave with her sunset, sunrise and all that stuff. Diving into Georgia's history just a little bit because doing a deep dive would be a podcast of its own. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, the state of Georgia has employed capital punishment since colonial times, with executions recorded at least as early as 1735. Crimes punishable by capital punishment in Georgia have historically included murder, robbery, rape, horse stealing, and aiding a runaway slave. Up until the 1920s, executions were generally carried out by hanging, although the condemned were sometimes executed by firing squad and at least two were burned at the stake. The first Georgia execution to utilize the electric care, electric chair was carried out in 1924. Electrocution quickly supplanted hanging as the state's primary execution method, although hanging was still used intermittently until 1931. Electrocution remained the primary method of 
execution until October 5th, 2001, when the Georgia Supreme Court declared the practice unconstitutional as cruel and unusual punishment, after which Georgia converted to using lethal injection. Before 1976, Georgia carried out 950 executions, the fourth highest number of any state. It is estimated that over 500 legal hangings occurred in Georgia between 1725 and 1925. A total of 256 executions took place in Reedsville, Georgia, where Georgia State Prison is located. Of the 256 executions carried out at Reedsville, 255 were male and only one was female. And that would be none other than my girl, Lena. She's actually the only woman that has ever been electrocuted in Georgia history. After years of Lena Baker's family advocating for her in 2001, members of her family petitioned to have a pardon granted by the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles, stating that the original verdict was racist and highly unconstitutional. And you would not have believed it, but yes, the pardon was actually granted in 2005. The parole board granted Lena Baker a full and unconditional pardon 60 years after Lena was electrocuted. 60 years, much too late in my opinion. But Lena's family was thrilled that instead of passing down the burden of the unjust act done to their loved one, they could finally pass down a sense of peace. The crazier part to me is that the parole board suggested a verdict of manslaughter, which would have carried a 15-year sentence, would have been more appropriate for this crime. This case for me was a tough pill to swallow, looking at a woman who was clearly dealt an unfair hand from the beginning. She was born into chopping cotton, having to work hard at an incredibly young age, and then growing older being told who she can and cannot have a relationship with, still having to face poverty with three children, all while fighting alcoholism, is enough to suffocate any person if you ask me. Lena was being harassed and could not turn to the police in fear that they would beat her within an inch of her, within an inch of her life as well, and could not just stand up to Ernest knowing that he too would beat her. I am in no way a mind reader and only three people know what really happened that night. But at some point, Lena was adding two plus two and getting negative five. And she was forced to eat or be eaten in this world. I am no way in shape or form or color or anything condoning the killing of Ernest or telling y'all to go out there and get your lick back. Because I, I really don't have any bail money or collateral for you, boo. But I am saying this is for the ones, you know, the ones, all of you out there who are doing people wrong and thinking that you have the upper hand. Don't mess around and find out. <laughs>